0: And this is our fourth sermon out of that study, and I'm not going to review each message simply because uh, that would not be appropriate or necessary at this time. But I do want to remind us just very quickly of the first two messages, what we said and what is established in Scripture, if you take the time to look and see this. First and foremost, we found and we were reminded of this truth that God is our Creator. And that is a a key, essential truth that we must understand, that we must grasp, that God is our creator. And then two weeks ago, we watched as the Scripture declared this of God, that He is unchanging. He is not undecided in who He is. He is not undecided in the positions that He holds or the positions that He takes. God has established who He is, and that is who He will be eternally. And then last week we looked at the story of Abraham and watched as God tested him as it related to his son Isaac as to whether or not he loved God more than he loved his son. And as Abraham, as he uh, executed obedience in his life, what he found God to be was the provider. And so we dealt with that not only in the story of Abraham but also in the story of the New Testament where Christ was speaking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6. And Christ himself said that if you will seek my kingdom first and my righteousness, then I will add all these things unto you. What Christ promised his disciples was this, is that if you will make me your number one priority in life, I will provide your needs. And that's a wonderful truth for us to be reminded of, that so long as we live in obedience to him, he is going to meet our every need. It may not come in the way we would like our needs met, It may not come as quickly as we would like our needs to be met, but if we will live in obedience to God's will for our lives, he will be faithful to meet our needs. So that's what we've dealt with the first three weeks, and today we're going to continue with this fourth message. Before we do, I'm going to share a story with you today that I'm sure I have mentioned at some point in the past. For those who have heard this before, I do apologize, but it just made sense for the text and for the the direction of the service today. And for those of you who have never heard it, I I hope that it helps and it's not overly uh, unexciting, all right? But uh, the year was 1997, so we're talking about 20 years ago now. Uh, I was in Bible college. I was working a full-time job in the evening. Susie was working a full-time job during the days because she was not a student. And during that time, we learned that Susie was pregnant with our first child, that being Nathan, and because it was my desire and it was my intention for Susie to be a stay-at-home mom whenever we became parents, whenever I found out and we found out that she was pregnant, I knew that her income would have to be supplemented. So I began looking for what would be a second job for myself. So some of you know this, that the second job that I found that would, that would work with my schedule was a paper route in the mornings there in Springfield, Missouri. So my days would begin at about 3.15 in the morning because I had to be at the pickup spot to get my papers around 3.30. So I had to wake up, get dressed to some extent, and then make it to the pickup spot by 3.30. So you can imagine in a situation like that, I was trying to sleep to the very last moment possible every morning. It's not as though I wanted to get up a few minutes early and just enjoy the time. So I got up at the very last minute possible. Every time I would stumble out the door, out to the car, and I would make my way to the pickup uh, designated spot. So on one particular morning, I went outside. It was during the winter months. And whenever I got outside, I was not expecting to find the amount of ice on the windshield that I was about to find, that I found, and, and so I did what any moron would do. I assumed it would be fine, it would be okay, that I would be able to get my way to the drop-off spot or the pickup location, and in doing so, the windshield would have time to defrost, and I'd be Okay. So I backed out of the driveway, having just scraped a little bit off of the windshield for me to try to see through. I was able to get out of our apartment complex with no issues to speak of, at least not that I knew of because I couldn't see. Anyways, I made the turn out of our apartment complex, and I was headed down the road, and unbeknownst to me, I had managed to swerve in that little bit of time to go across the what would be the incoming lane of traffic. Fortunately, at that time of morning, there were no other cars. But there was a warning sign there that I was not able to see, and so I hit the warning sign. Whenever I hit this warning sign, I hit this pole, it managed to put a nice dent all along the front bumper and the front panel of my car, and it worked its way into the door as well, so it became a challenge to get the door open and closed, and you can imagine I was just a little frustrated with myself. I could not blame this on a boss. I could not blame this on Susie. I could not push this off on anyone. Every bit of this was my fault. Well, to spare you all the details as to what happened in the next couple of days, I'll just get to the point, and then we'll get to the text. But over the course of the next few days, here's what I was able to do. I was able to find an aftermarket quarter panel, and and I was able to have a friend who knew someone paint that for me. I got it back, and a man in the church that we were attending with at the time, he knew how to to repair cars, and so he helped me get the old one off and put the new one on. and, And relatively speaking, everything was put back to normal, and everything was put back in place and I was happy with the final product, again, generally speaking. Here was the most painful part of the process. Though everything was put back together, I knew what had happened. I knew where there were still flaws in what had been done. I knew that the paint did not match completely. I knew that the pinstripe was, was not there like it was on the other side. I was aware of it even though things were put back together. But I would say this, that though I was still frustrated with it, I was so thankful that it was able to be fixed and able to be restored and put back to how it needed to be in the first place. All right. So that's kind of a quick story that will kind of illustrate where the message is headed. But in 2 Samuel this morning, I want us to look in chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. As you find your place, let me just give you some quick background here. That in 2 Samuel chapter 11, here is what we find and here is what we discover is that David is the king of Israel right now. And at this point, David is not an old man. He is not in the final years of his life. From what we can tell, David is still very much a strong man. He is still very much in the prime of his life. So in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we began reading a story that is familiar to many of us. It says in verse number 1, And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Reba, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. So I want us to notice in verse number one what has happened, that it is now the appropriate time, it is now the appropriate season when kings and nations would have gone into battle protecting their territory or trying to advance their kingdom and gain more territory, but nonetheless it said in verse number one that kings would go out to battle, which meant this, is that the kings kings would go out with their men, they would go out with their armies, and be engaged in the process that their nation was engaged in. The kings were supposed to be a part of what was happening and what was going on. But it says in verse number one that David tarried still at Jerusalem. So what does that mean? It means this, David was not where he was supposed to be. David was not where he should have been. David should have been in the land where, where Joab and the soldiers were at. He should have been with them in the midst of the battle. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. So in verse number 2 it says, And it came to pass in an evening tide, some evening, that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. So if we're familiar with the story, we know what has happened, that it's sometime in the evening, David is up, he is walking about on the roof of his house, and from his vantage point, he is able to see somewhere, apparently in the, in the near distance, he is able to see this lady who is bathing herself, and the scripture says that she was beautiful to look upon. Now, I think most of us understand this. I would hope that most of us would agree with this, that immediately David should have turned himself from what he was seeing and not entertained himself by the view that was now before him. He should have realized, this woman is not my wife. This woman does not belong to me, so therefore I don't need to be staring at her. But, but instead of turning away from what he was seeing, he sat there and he enjoyed it. And then in verse number 3 it says... And David sent and inquired after the woman. So basically what he is saying is this, find out who she is. She's beautiful, she's gorgeous, she's she's lovely for the eyes to look upon. So find out who she is. And it says in verse number 3 and one said, "Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the uh, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite?" So when David inquires as to who this woman is, it is said to him that she is the wife of Uriah. Now right there, that should have ended any pursuits and desires that David had. Immediately, whenever he found out that she was married to another man, that should have been the end of the discussion, the end of the story. That should have been all David needed to know, that she was off limits. She was not something that he could be entertained by. But nonetheless, it says in verse number four, and David sent messengers and took her and she came in unto him and he lay with her. So what did David do? Knowing that she was married to another man, knowing that she should have been off limits to him, he went ahead and had her brought to him and they had the relationship they had. And when this little tryst was over, what did David do? He sent her back on her way, assuming that everything was fine, that everything would be okay. So, in verse number 5, this is not what he was expecting. It says, And the woman conceived, and sent and told David, and said, I am with child. So that little rendezvous, that little time together, that little hookup that David enjoyed, it resulted in her becoming pregnant with a child. And this is not what David needed for his reputation. This is not what David would have needed for any reason whatsoever. So in verse number 8, it says, David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. So here's what happens. The Scripture explains that Uriah was sent home from the battlefield with the intention of David being that Uriah would go home, have relationships with his wife that evening, and then when he came back from battle, the assumption would be, based upon that night together, the pregnancy resulted in that, and, and there would never be any second thought as to why Bathsheba was pregnant. But as the story unfolds, here's what we find, is that Uriah would not sleep with his wife whenever he came home, because he said it wasn't right for him to enjoy that when his fellow countrymen were out in the battle and engaged in what they were engaged in. And so now David was presented with another dilemma. He has conceived a child, or he is now fathering a child, outside of wedlock with a married woman, and the husband will not help him in the covering up aspect of things. So David has to decide now, what do I do next? And he does what many of us are familiar with, he sends a letter in the hand of Uriah to Joab the captain, and basically the letter says this, find the hottest part of the battle, the most intense part of the battle, put Uriah there, and whenever the time is right, retreat, leave Uriah alone, and allow Uriah to die in battle. Now, friends, You don't have to be very discreet to understand what's going on. You don't have to have a lot of knowledge and a lot of understanding to know what is taking place. David has just ordered the execution of Uriah. So David is now not only guilty of adultery, he is now also guilty of lying to try to cover it up. And as a result of the cover-up not working, he is now guilty of not just the murder of Uriah, but the other men who died unnecessarily in a battle that didn't need to take place. So David has the blood of several men on, my, on his hands as a result of trying to cover up his sin. Now when David gets the news that Uriah has been killed in battle... The scripture indicates that David is satisfied with himself and David is pleased, assuming that everything has been squared away, that everything has been taken care of, and now no one will be the worse for it until chapter 12. Well, what happens in chapter 12? Well, that's when it says in verse number one, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. And so here is Nathan, and he is a prophet of God, and here's what he's about to do. He is about to confront David on his sin. He is about to tell a story, and he's going to use that to illustrate David's actions. And David is going to get angry, and David is going to say, this man deserves to die because of what he's done. And in the midst of his anger, here is what Nathan the prophet is going to say. He's going to say, David, thou art the man. You're the one who I'm talking about. You are the 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 rich man in this story who has taken advantage of his power and authority and abused others, okay? So that's what happens in chapter 12. And so as all this is unfolding, here's what the Scripture also allows us to understand, is that David is a miserable man. The fun that he had with the sexual relationship, the fun that he had that night with Bathsheba, everything that he thought was going to be this simple evening or or whatever it was of pleasure, every bit of that has turned against him, and he is a miserable individual. The sin was costing him far more than he wanted to pay. It it was having far more of an effect on him than what he ever imagined it could have had on him. Well, how do we know? We'll turn over to Psalm 51. Again, many of us are familiar with this portion of Scripture. But in Psalm 51, before verse 1, we read these words. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this is what happens as a result of the confrontation of Nathan the prophet to David in relation to his sin. David begins to pray and he begins to cry out to God. Now, we're not going to look at all of this, but I just want us to see a couple of verses. In verse number one, he said this, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Okay. So in verse number one, here is what he asked for. He asked for forgiveness or for the mercy of God. In verse number two, he said, wash me throughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. In verse number eight, he says, "Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sin, and blot out all mine iniquities." What is David doing? He is crying out in forgiveness, or for forgiveness of his sins. David is realizing, you know what? This sin that I've engaged in, it's robbed me of my joy. It's robbed me of my gladness. It's robbed me of my contentment. It's robbed me of my peace. And God, I need to know your mercy. And God, I need to know your forgiveness. God, I need to be able to to know joy and gladness once more. Because again, the sin had robbed him of the joy and the gladness he had known. So in verse number 10... David says this Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Verse number 12 Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. You know what David is asking for in verses 10 and 12? In addition to forgiveness, you know what he is asking for? He's asking for restoration. God, I have wrecked my life. God, I'm the one who did this. God, I'm the one who looked upon Bathsheba when I had no business looking upon her. And God, I'm the one who called her to me even after I found out that she was a married woman. God, I am the one who ordered her husband to be murdered whenever he would not do what I was hoping he would whenever he came home from the battle. God, I am the one responsible for this. I have made a mess of things. It's my fault and no one else's fault. I can't push this off on anyone else. But God, in spite of all that, here's what I'm asking you to do. Restore the joy. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And uphold me with the free spirit. You know what he was saying? He was saying this, God, I need you to fix this. God, I need you to restore this. I, I need you to make this whole once more. God, I blew it. God, I fouled it up, but but God, I need you to restore and to renew. You know what's interesting? Is if you go back and you continue reading through the story, you know what God did? He restored him. He renewed him. The joy was restored. The gladness was restored. The the peace was restored. The contentment was restored. You know what David found God to be? He found God to be a restorer of broken relationships. David had completely messed things up. David had completely fouled things up. David had wrecked his life. But you know who he found God to be? He found him to be one who was willing to restore the relationship, even though David was the one who had messed it up. That may not be too exciting. That may not be too thrilling. But it's probably more exciting if we would think about it as it relates to us. But before we do, I want us to consider another passage, because it ties into this message, what I've said previously, that being the eternal, unchanging nature of who God is. See, here's what some people would say, that's Old Testament, and God's the God of love in the Old Testament, but in the, you know, in the New Testament, he's the God of, of law. Wait, no, no, no. See, that argument would be just backwards, right? Duh. Okay. See, in the Old Testament, he's the God of love, and you don't expect to find much restoration there. But see, that's who God was, even when he's perceived to be this big, bad, mean bully kind of a, of a person. See, in, in the Old Testament, what is he? He is the God that restores. And here's what's beautiful, as you transition into the New Testament, nothing changes. How do we know? We'll turn over, if you would, very quickly to the book of John. The book of John, chapter 18. In John, chapter 18, here's what you find if you consider the context of things. You find that Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. Jesus is now involved in this mock trial where he will be sentenced to die But before all that happened, here's what Jesus said to Peter because Peter had said, Though all forsake you, you can count on me. I'll not forsake you. I'll not deny you. And yet when you come to verse number 27, it says this of John chapter 18, Peter then denied again and immediately the cock crew. What does that mean? It means this. It means that Peter did exactly as Jesus said he would do. And for the third time that night, Peter denied knowing Christ. He completely rejected the idea and the notion that he knew Christ, that he was one of his disciples, that he was one of the followers. And as a result of denying him the third time, the cock crew, just as Christ said it was going to happen. And then it's in the book of Matthew chapter 26 and in Luke chapter 22. Here is what happens. Peter recognizes his mistake and his failure. And what does he do? The scripture says he went out And he wept bitterly. As a result of his failure, Peter wept bitterly. Why is that important? It's important for this reason. Whenever Peter failed, Peter did not fail and it not have some kind of an impact and effect on his life. It it was something that messed him up. It was something that, for lack of better terms, it wrecked his life. And he's not enjoying the consequences of it. So here is Peter, and he's completely fouled things up. Peter, it's all on you. You were the one who promised that everything was going to be good with you and the Lord, that you would never deny him, that you would never forsake him, and now you have completely failed him. And now Peter is out weeping, and he's weeping bitterly, and he cannot stand the pain of his own failure and the pain uh, of what he has done by way of his relationship to Christ. Let's listen now. And as a result of all of this, Peter is questioning everything that he's been a part of for the last three and a half years. So much so that whenever you come to John chapter 20, chapter 21, rather, he says this in verse number three I go a fishing, I'm done. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening. My world's been turned upside down. I was following Christ. I told him I wouldn't forsake him. I told him that he could depend. Though though everyone would forsake him, he could depend on me. He wouldn't have to worry about me. And 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 I'm the one who forsook him and denied him three times. And and I don't know what's going on. I I don't know what's taking place. All I know is this, is I know how to fish, and that's what I'm going to do. And I'm just going to go to to my old way of life, and I'm just going to continue on and, and just... Live out my days doing what I've always done. And what did Christ do? In verse number 15 it says, So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, Lovest thou me more than these? Now we're not going to read through all of this, and I'm not going to deal with all the intricacies of this, because those are messages in and of themselves. But in John chapter 21, you know what Jesus began? He began the restoration process. Peter, you fouled up. Peter, you failed me. Peter, you said you were not going to forsake me. You said you would not deny me. You said, though all forsake you, I could depend on you. Uh, Listen, that's what you said. It's not what you did. But listen, we're not here to talk about that. I am here to restore you. I'm here to get you back to where you need to be and your relationship with me. Peter, I'm not done with you. Peter, I'm not finished with you. Peter, I'm not wanting to write you off because of your failures. No, what I'm wanting to do is this, is I am wanting to help you right now. Start where we're at. Kind of like what the song said just a moment ago. I want you to start all over again right here where you're at. No, we can't go back and change what you've done. No, we can't go back and and replay that and redo it and fix it. But here's what we can do. We can restore the relationship ship from this point forward and move on. Did Peter still remember his failures? Of course he did. Did he know what it was like before the failures? Of course he did. Did David know what it was like before his failures? Of course he did. But who did they find God to be? The restorer. The fixer. The repairer. The one who said we can take this And we can make it into something else. And from this point forward, you can move on and still be usable and of value to me. This morning, I want us to think about our lives prior to salvation. Prior to salvation, what were we? Well, we were all sinners who were deserving of death, correct? Now, I don't know when you got saved, and I don't know when your story or how your story unfolds and how it all plays out, but here is what I think is safe for me to assume of all of us, and that would be this, is that there was several reasons probably that contributed to you and I coming to Christ for salvation, but one of them probably among that list would have been this, is that you were kind of tired of the effect that sin was taking in your life. Because you had kind of fouled things up and wrecked your life, so to speak, and, and you were kind of not enjoying the consequences of your sin anymore. You know, you had tried this and you had tried this and you had lived this way and you had partied this way and you had partaken in this and, and you had all these things in your life and, and as you engaged in all these different activities, you realized, I don't have the joy and the gladness that I thought I was going to have as a result of, of this lifestyle. So what did you do? You you did the same thing that I did. You called out to God for salvation. Now you probably didn't use these words, but what you were saying in a sense is this, is God, I need this broken relationship to be made right with you. Now we've got to understand this. We were not capable of making the relationship right Only God was capable of making the relationship right because of his work through Jesus Christ in us. So it wasn't anything that we brought to the table and said, okay, things have been messed up and things aren't right and things aren't what they're supposed to be. So God understand, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fix this relationship by what I do. No, friends, we had no part in that whatsoever. The only way that the relationship was able to be made right with God was through his work Through Jesus Christ working in us. He was the one who made the relationship what it needed to be. So we get saved. And we're following the Lord and we're living, hopefully, in the way that we're supposed to. And then what happens? Sin still enters our life, does it not? I hope we hear this because this is important. Here we are, we're Christians, we're children of God, we're believers, we're we're saved individuals, and, and yet as we're going through life, what happens? Some temptation enters into our life. Maybe not a Bathsheba, but a temptation that enters into our life. Maybe not a forsaking of Christ and whether or not we know Him, but a temptation enters our lives, and we fail in relation to the temptation that we were allowed to experience. Every one of us have failed. I don't care who we are or what we think of our spiritual lives, every one of us have failed. And as we failed, here's what happened. That took a greater impact on our lives than we thought it was going to take. We failed here and we didn't foresee this kind of problem, but that's the problem that arose because of our failure. We failed over here and we didn't foresee this happening, but this is what happened. We we messed up here and, and, and whatever it is, we've all got our own stories, but every one of us have failed and it was far more painful than what we expected it to be been there, right? And as a result of our failures, here's what we've discovered. We don't have it in us to fix this. Because if we had had it in us to fix it, we probably would have had it in us to avoid the consequences of it. So here we are, we're going along, we're serving the Lord, yet we get tripped up by some sin in our lives, and now it's taking a toll in our lives in a way that we never dreamed, in ways that we never envisioned. And there's nobody to blame but ourselves. We've kind of wrecked our lives, so to speak. Things are a mess. We're totally frustrated. And we finally realize we've only got one option. One real option, and that is this. Cry out to God. God, I need you to renew me. And God, I need you to restore unto me the joy of my salvation. God, I'm asking you to forgive me. God, I'm asking you to show me your mercy. God, I'm asking you to wash me. God, I am asking you to to make things right. Put things back together. God, would you do that? And you know what is amazing? It is amazing to me because I don't have this kind of grace and I don't have this kind of mercy. But it is amazing to me that every time I wreck my life and foul things up and ask the Lord to restore me, you know what I have found Him to be? The restorer. Now you may sit here and say, well, I haven't needed that in my life. Then you don't begin to realize how badly you need it in your life. We have fouled up, we have messed up, we have totally just just messed it up in ways that, that we cannot repair. And yet whenever we go to the Lord and we say, Lord, I need you. I need you to restore. I need you to renew. I need you to give back that joy. I need you to give back that gladness. Did you know that there has never been a time that he has said to anyone who came to him with a pure heart and a right heart, there has never been a time that he has said, no, I'm not doing that. You made the mess, you go fix it yourself. He's never said that to one of us. He's never said that to anyone. He has always been the one who was willing to restore when we were the ones who made the mess. I am thankful that over the last thirty years of my life, since my salvation, I am thankful that many times God has been willing to restore me. I'm thankful for that. Probably, if you'd be honest this morning, you'd have to say, Well, I'm thankful as well because God has been faithful to restore me when I have failed him. That that would probably be your testimony if you were honest. But I want to share something with us this morning. We're almost done, but I want to share this with us, and that is this. If God gives you very many more days to live, you know what you're bound to do at some point you're bound to foul it all up once more. I'm bound to do it. No, I'll never do that. Okay, Peter. I mean, okay, brother. Really? I mean, you know, there are some, oh, I would never do that. Come on, that's what Peter said. Listen, the likelihood of us fouling it up at some point in some manner, the chances of that are pretty good. And you know what we're going to need at that point in the future? restoration now understand please here's what satan will try to tell us he's not going to this time you messed it up way too bad this time yeah he may have restored you the last time but he will not restore you this time No, no 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 you totaled it this time Can I just remind us that is nothing more than a lie from Satan trying to keep us defeated because there is nothing by way of our sin that cannot be restored by the grace and the mercy of God because God is a restorer of broken relationships with him. And so this morning you may be sitting here saying this, I've struggled to believe that God would forgive, that God would restore, that God would make right. I understand the struggle. I do. But you've got to recognize this morning that it doesn't matter where you've been. And some of you may say, well, you had that song planned. No, we didn't even talk. I was as surprised as you were this morning as to what the song was, okay? I'm just saying it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you've been. Truly, you can start all over again because of the grace and the mercy and the restoration of a loving God. Here's what I know. You and I, as much as we would love to find that forgiveness and then forget what we've done, you know what our problem is many times? It's kind of like me with the car. I could still see the flaws on the bumper. I could still see the flaws on that quarter panel. I was aware of everything that I had done and how stupid I was, and so I could still kick myself because of my laziness and my ignorance. And as a result, that would rob me from my joy as well. Can I just share with us that sometimes in our spiritual lives, this is what happens. We go to God and we ask for forgiveness. We go to God and we ask for restoration. And we believe that he's done it. And yet we get up from that time of prayer and we still say, but I messed up here and I messed up here and I fouled up here and I failed here. And I should have done this better and I shouldn't have done that. And you know what that does? That continues to rob us of our joy and the gladness that we're supposed to have in the Christian life. Did you wreck it? Yes. Did you foul it up? Yes. Did you mess it up in a serious kind of way? Yes. But you've been restored. You have been forgiven. Do not dwell on the failures of your past. Know that you've been forgiven and know that you've been restored because that is who God is. He is a restorer. And then live in joy knowing it's all taken care of. If he's not dwelling on it, I don't need to dwell on it. If he's not rehashing it, I don't need to rehash it. Who is God? David would say, he's a restorer. Who is God? Peter would say, he's a restorer. Who is God? The Apostle Paul would say, he is a restorer. Who is God? You and I can say he is a restorer. You may need restoration this morning. You may need to thank the Lord for his restoration. But we need to be reminded he is a God who desires to restore us when the relationship has been messed up by our actions. Let's all stand this morning and bow our heads for prayer. Fathers, we come to you this morning. I pray that you would help us to realize who you are, that you are not a God just waiting to drop the hammer on us. You are not a God who is excited about chastening us. You are a God that wants to restore us and make things right. And God, if there's someone in here this morning who has been defeated by Satan's lies, they've come to the conclusion that you would not restore them after this kind of a failure, I pray that today they would realize that it doesn't matter. Whatever the failure is, you desire and you are able to restore them. And God, in the days to come, we will most likely need to be reminded of this truth. I pray that you'd help us to be reminded that no matter what, you are willing and you are able to restore us. So I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.